Sawbones is a show about medical history, and nothing the hosts say should be taken as medical advice or opinion. It's for fun. Can't you just have fun for an hour and not try to diagnose your mystery boil? We think you've earned it. Just sit back, relax, and enjoy a moment of distraction from that weird growth. You're worth it. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. I'm your co-host, Justin McElroy. And I'm Sydney McElroy. Oh, no. Can you say, I'm not used to podcasting. Grip it and rip it. Thank you, Sydney. Thank you so I much. I, I will know. grip it and indeed rip it. You, but you gripped it. You already, it's like past tense. You have, you have. I have gripped and doth have ripped <laughs> this Topo Chico margarita. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is Sawbones late night. That's right. One of those rare, the kids are in bed recordings, and that means anything goes. Sydney, what do you enjoy in there over on your side of the table? Well, it's um, a beer. It's a local? P- Is it local? Mm. Looks like it. It's got a guy no. on a bike on it. No, it's from Virginia. Hey, Lost Rhino Brewing Company. This is not an ad. It this feels like there's an it ad. It feels like it's an a ad. face plant. It's good. Okay, well, now that we've got... There's not an ad for that, It's not an ad for beer or Topo Chico. They didn't pay. And can I just say we just opened these, like, just this second? Just this second, yeah. We are never... We're never intoxicated doing Sawbones, and you have occasionally been accused of being so, but you never have... I never have You aren't, and so... But I don't know what that says about you, that you just seem that way. But after the kids are asleep, that is time to open a Topo Chico. So So the kids are asleep, so I must open the Topo Chico. I will manage a few sips and then finish when the episode is over. But we do not do these intoxicated. I just wanted yeah. to, I wanted Once to put that out there. Once the episode is over, Sydney will, as she does every weeknight, punch me in the face and say, chug a lug, stupid, and then up <laughs> in her into her, her waiting gullet I as she opens the other one. I won't do that. One. It's just been, it's been a long couple weeks, y'all. Yeah, y'all. Uh, obviously, we're we're short on, on our um, child care situation, which yeah. is why we're recording late at night when the yeah. kids are asleep, and um, you're about to leave town. That's true. And Head that's on over to Salt Lake City and Portland, and those shows are over, so I can't promote them anymore. No. By the time you hear this, that, that will be over. Anyway, that's also why we're recording early. But So I want to tell you about a different cocktail, Justin. Ooh. Not, a, and well, I was going to say not an alcohol one, but it is an alcohol one, but we'll Perfect. get into that. Um, this uh, suggestion came from a listener named Carmen. Thank you, Carmen, because I had never heard of the Brompton cocktail. The Brompton cocktail was a new one on me, too, Sid. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what it was. In the email, it was look into this. I had no idea what it was, so I looked into it. And um, I think it's an interesting, it's like a little teeny, this is, this episode is like a tidbit of medical history, just a little love tiny. The tid- love the tidbits. You all have tidbits in your area when you're waiting to get into Taste of Asia, mm-hmm. and they have a big stack of tidbits, maybe at the Pizza Hut, big mm-hmm. stack of tidbits that are like, 
flyers that are two-page brochures, basically, with just full of trivia. And jokes. And, and, and jokes and local ads. Mm-hmm. Tidbits. Sometimes like a word search. Sometimes if you're lucky. Uh, no, this is, I meant small, like an amuse-bouche of, of medical history. But I think it illustrates a kind of um, cool, it's like a bigger idea that it's illustrating in like the change of medicine over time okay. in this little amuse-bouche. So uh, the history, I'm going to tell you, I know right now you're like, well, tell me what the freaking cocktail is. I'm going to tell you what it is. I promise you that's part of this. But it's really tied to our understanding of of cancer specifically, but more broadly, the idea of, like, terminal illness. The mm. idea, um, I mean, you have to think about, like, initially, it probably felt like most things we didn't know how to cure, right? Like, most of the time people got sick, you just sort of hoped for the best because there was a lot we didn't know. Right. Right? And, I mean, if you look at, like, um, the rate of scientific advancement, especially, like, as we go from the late 1800s into the early 1900s, and we understand the germ theory of disease, and then we enter the antibiotic era, there must have been a sense that for everything, the cures are just waiting to be found, Mm -hmm. right? Like as we learned all this stuff and our knowledge base accumulated, you know, quickly, even things like cancer, we must have had this sort of sense for a while, like, well, we'll figure out the cure to that too. Yeah. We can cure anything. Why not? With science, with modern science- we can cure anything. Nothing can withstand us. Yeah. Exactly. And we had some ideas with things like radiation and surgery that had been around for a while, even before chemo. Um, however, even as we sort of were coming up with all these other great ideas to like cure infections and things that we never had been able to do before, um, we 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 were also developing this simultaneous understanding that maybe some things we can't fix yet. Mm. Maybe some things, yes. as far as we know, we can't fix. And there was a recognition that with some of these diagnoses, some of these things that were terminal, and, and like cancer is is a lot is closely tied to this specific substance, this Brompton cocktail. But I mean, the same would have been true for things like tuberculosis for a lot of history. You watched people progress in their disease. You knew you couldn't stop it. You knew that that would come with pain and depression and and some degree of suffering. And so the idea that, you know what, maybe there's also another thing we need to work on, which is how do we take care of those people we can't make better? And I know that sounds like a really obvious idea now, but at this point in history, it would have been pretty revolutionary to suggest that. Palliative care, we call it. Exactly. So the precursor to this, and this is before the concept of palliative care had been um, introduced, is a Dr. Herbert Snow. So he is a surgeon and a cancer researcher in the late 1800s and early 1900s. He worked at the Cancer Hospital in Brompton, London. It would later be called the Royal Marsden Hospital. But um, anyway, I, I should note about Dr. Snow that while he is key to the story of the Brompton cocktail, and there are some good things that came from that, he he was um, anti-vaccine. Uh, he did not believe in the germ theory of disease, which is too bad because the germ theory of disease will believe in you, whether whether you believe in it or not. You know nothing, Herb Snow. Uh, well, let's not dwell on those things. Okay. <laughs> he was also an anti-vivisectionist, which I guess was a big movement that just said we don't need to cut anything open to understand it better. Don't agree with that. Which, 
unfortunately, we do need we, we did do, we gotta we, did, we maybe did not anymore. To. There's probably good enough videos, but <laughs> mm. no, still okay. Mm. okay. Well, I mean, I'm not suggesting that like. I mean, we understand a lot about anatomy now. Yeah. Like, we got a lot of it figured out. Yeah, it's just weird to me. Okay, listen, I'm a layman. But, like, surgeries still have to I'm happen. A layman, so. I'm a layman, and this is a bit of a heavy episode, so grant me 30 seconds. Okay. You all don't need to cut people up anymore. You get it. Uh, I, you're, like, the last generation, I feel like, that where a full autopsy was, like, part of your medical training like de rigueur right like there's 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 more modern ways of doing it now and you guys you really don't need to cut people uh dead people up anymore f- just for yucks that's well okay well first of all it was never done for yucks not for yucks that, but that I'm just, dishonors the people who donate never, their bodies to I'm medical just saying feel like we should have enough videos no, it, um, as far as I know, in many med school, I know in our med school, in many med schools, um, cadaver lab and anatomical dissection is still very much part of medical curriculum. Oh, okay. They did try to move away from it for a while, but I believe it's back. I, anyway. I get it. I'll I know it is word, at our med school. I'll take your word for it that you need to do it. Just seems a little morbid. I don't know. So, uh, Dr. Snow, not let's not dwell on his vaccine feelings. He also observed that uh, many of the cancer patients for whom he was providing care and on whom he was uh, researching, he, um, he noted that they were suffering, and he came up with something to help ease that suffering. Um, he published an article in the British Medical Journal in 1896 about cancer and its causes and the progression— no, he didn't get everything entirely right, mm. I should say. Uh, he felt that the root cause of cancer was neuroses. Oh, like you get too nervous? So, I mean, neuroses was like a bigger concept. But, I mean, it was certainly tied to probably like a manifestation of anxiety. And okay. like when you think about like that sort of like what we think of as like terminal restlessness now, um, the 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 pain and the like emotional repercussions of that that he was observing like you could see where that all would get tied together and especially if you could give somebody a medicine that would ease some of those outward signs of suffering Mm -hmm. you may believe you're actually doing something to fix it right because they're they seem less distressed so maybe you've made them better we understand better i mean like we understand now that just like providing analgesia doesn't necessarily fix a problem i got gotcha. you but, but at the time you wouldn't have necessarily known that it gave you the exterior appearance of solving the problem so we gave people a mixture of morphine and cocaine oh yeah and what he found is people seem yeah, to lot. I know we said there's no such thing as a cure-all over here, but I bet that gets you halfway <laughs> at least for most stuff. So what he found is that people felt a lot better when you gave them morphine and cocaine. Yes, as many kid rock songs will attest. The, the morphine, of course, was known to do pain, and the cocaine was thought to provide vitality. You can see why. Yeah. Yeah. Love them and vigor. <laughs> now, uh, again, the idea of doing that at the time— was pretty, even though that doesn't sound revolutionary, like, so somebody was hurting and you treated their pain, of course. Well, this would have been a bigger deal at the time. Um, now, the addition of cocaine would cause a problem. It's not the problem you think, though. Really? 
the problem that it caused for Dr. Snow at his hospital was cost. Cocaine was expensive. Yeah, it's been my problem with it, too. And the hospital was not willing to continue to supply Herbert Snow's patients with cocaine. Yeah, I understand, especially if they weren't valuing or prioritizing pain management. So his so his cocktail, his concoction, his mixture fell out of favor favor within like a year of him introducing it simply because the hospital just could not afford to continue to buy cocaine for the patients. Um but once that idea, once an idea like that gets out, you know it's going to catch on. <laughs> so throughout the early part of the 1900s, you start to see other physicians writing in articles and in um, their medical records about employing a similar substance for their patients, and they begin calling it the Brompton Cocktail. Now, it this was widely adopted at Brompton Hospital, which was near the cancer hospital, near the Royal Marsden. So the Brompton name could have come from the hospital specifically or just generally from the fact that they were in Brompton. Either way. So they start calling this mixture the Brompton Cocktail. And at the Brompton Hospital, surgeons begin using it um, for patients who are recovering from a thoracotomy, from having like a surgery where their th- where their chest was opened, um, that would be a, a very painful recovery process. I can imagine, yeah. And so having a mixture of morphine and cocaine probably would be very helpful in that recovery. Um, and they improved upon it by mixing them in a base of gin and honey. Oh. So. Now it's even more of a cocktail. Now it's now it's a cocktail. Now it's a cocktail. Now it's a cocktail. Uh, that made it tastier and I, more fun. Probably. Okay. Um, over at King's College Hospital at St. Luke's, they begin using the hospital at different hospital or begin using the cocktail at different hospitals throughout London. Um, and the name remained the Brompton cocktail, even though like the ingredients would change depending on the physician, More about the, the hospital. The spirit of the thing. It's the same concept. And I will say for the most part, morphine and cocaine were pretty like standard in every mixture. Um, the other ingredients would vary. Um, like any alcohol would do after a while. You know, it didn't have to be gin. In 1952, the Brompton Hospital actually added, like, a recipe for the, like, codified Brompton cocktail to the national formulary. And at that point, the recipe was a quarter grain of morphine, a sixth grain of cocaine, 90% alcohol, and you need 30 minims of that. I'm not sure. 30 I'm sorry. I'm taking notes here. Uh, 60 minims of syrup, so some sort of simple syrup, probably sugar, a sugar base, right, for the alcohol. And then chloroform water was actually added in there, a half an ounce. Yeah. So— And you drink this? mm -hmm. Yeah, you would take this—you could take this orally. Um, There were other formulations that would be made with some of the substances that would be injectable, but oral formulations were most most common. Um, and like I said, as the recipe spread from London and outside the UK, um, sometimes they traded out certain ingredients. Like, for instance, morphine was occasionally traded for something called diamorphine. This is also an opioid. Obviously, it's a it's a, a synthetic form, like chemical alteration of more of the compound morphine. Right? It's faster. You can use less for the same effect. So it's it's super morphine. Yeah, you may know it by a different name. Uh. Heroin. Ah, okay, got it. Yes. All right. So at this point, like now you know the rest of the drugs. <laughs> at, yes, dimorphine is also. I mean, like it's a, it's a heroin is a crude form of dimorphine. Um, depending on her, heroin is a colloquial term. It's not a met. You know, like it's not a medicine. So 
it is a, it can be applied to multiple substances that might have slightly different chemical yeah, gotcha. formulations. Crudely speaking, dimorphine is, was heroin at the time. Okay. Um, and uh, in addition to trading diamorphine in for morphine, which obviously would make it much stronger and faster acting, um, some physicians would add things like Thorazine, which was like an early antipsychotic that would be sedating. It also had like a lot of side effects. And then sometimes things like um, promethazine phenergan, an antihistamine mm. that we use for nausea nowadays, for nausea and sedation and things like that. And this Brompton cocktail in one of these formulations with these various substances became like not just a mainstay of taking care of people with pain or recovering from surgery or whatever in hospitals, but like almost took on like a mythical kind of quality. How so? Like um, it was this magic mixture of substances that was thought to provide so much relief that it must be doing something beyond like the sum. It was synergistic. The sum of its parts was greater it must not just be getting you drunk and high very quickly. It did. There was a lot written and talked about how somehow by it's not just the morphine and the cocaine. They do something when they're mixed together that we can't understand <laughs> um, that is beyond what you would expect the properties of these individual medicines to be. And so the, that is how the Brompton cocktail became this kind of like. Uh, it was an idea as much as it was an actual thing. Okay. The idea of giving someone who is in great suffering this elixir. And you and the words I'm using are very specific because that's how it was referred to, these elixirs, concoctions, potions. It sounds kind of magical. Mm-hmm. It sounds wasn't. Like a, a bit of magical thinking, though. And this, and this would call to the eras of medicine before where, like, that wouldn't have been uncommon. I mean, if you think about tinctures and poultices and all the different things that people used— a ton of different ingredients would go into those things a lot of times. It would be it would be like a mithridate kind of thing, something, the antidote to all poisons. Um, but of course that would change. Yes, sadly. <laughs> but before I tell you about oh, that. No. Before you rain on the proverbial parade. Oh, no. before, I'm, before I become Buzz Killington. <laughs> <laughs> let's go to the billing department. Let's go. The medicines, the medicines that escalate macabre for the mouth. We have just started rehearsing for the summer theater. That's right. Summer starts in March around these parts, and that means we don't have much time at all in the evenings to make dinner. But we will not be just consuming Wendy's, uh, although there will be some Wendy's consumed. But we are going to have a little extra help with Factor, which delivers ready-to-eat delicious meals right to your door. And not like junky stuff you get out of the freezer aisle, whatever. This is real high-quality, chef-crafted stuff that in two minutes you're ready to eat it. I'm talking about some Southwestern-style turkey and mac. I think this week I'm going to be enjoying a shredded chicken taco bowl is 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 part of my plan. Um, but they got, like, fancy stuff. Listen to this. Where are you going to get this? Truffle butter filet mignon. I mean, seriously? From, from, from a, a box? Pre-prepared, all I got in two minutes, I'm eating filet mignon. That sounds delicious. Yeah, it sounds delicious. And you can give these a try. And it's not just these meals. We're talking pancakes, smoothies. They got some great wellness shots that are surprisingly delicious. And the meals you just eat and eat. There's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup. Get as much as you need by choosing your meals every week. You're going to get exactly what you want. No surprises here. 
Uh, and the meals, I can say, are delicious. So what do you got to lose? Head on over to factormeals.com slash sawbones50 and use code sawbones50 to get 50% off. That's code sawbones50 at factormeals.com slash sawbones50 to get 50% off. Sydney, you know how you're always saying that you'd like to build a Justin McQuarrie fan site full of all your favorite quotes, clips, videos, and hunky pictures of beloved podcaster Justin McElroy? I don't remember. Well, there's that- no need to wait any longer, Sydney, because Squarespace is going to make it easier than you could possibly believe to make a website uh, all about your favorite hunky podcasting superstar. I don't think I was going Squarespace, to— Squarespace, what is it? It's a tool—think of it as— the palette, the palette of a web design artist. But you don't have to be a web design artist. You could just take stuff off the palette that is created by real people that know what they're really doing and put it from the palette onto the easel. The metaphor is broken down. Basically, you're going to be able to create great-looking websites that have fantastic customer support and help you unlock your creativity and do whatever you want to with your small business or podcaster obsession. You can sell products. You can uh, post your videos. You can share your stories about how Justin has shaped your life and is also a fantastic father. Folks, you got to stop waiting to make your Justin McElroy fan site. Go to squarespace.com slash sawbones for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch your Justin McElroy fan site, use offer code sawbones to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Hi, my name is Graham Clark, and I'm one half of the podcast Stop Podcasting Yourself, a show that we've recorded for many, many years. And uh, at the moment, instead of being in person, we're recording remotely, and uh, you wouldn't even notice. You don't even notice the lag. That's right, Graham. And uh, the great thing about this... Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Okay. Okay, go ahead. And you can listen to us uh, every week on MaximumFun.org. Or wherever you get your podcasts. Your podcasts. Hi, it's me, Dave Hill, from before. Here to tell you about my brand new show on Maximum Fun, the Dave Hill Good Time Hour, which combines my old Maximum Fun show, Dave Hill's podcasting incident, with my old radio show, The Goddamn Dave Hill Show, into one new futuristic program from the future. If you like delightful conversation with incredible guests, technical difficulties, and actual phone calls from real-life listeners, you've just hit a street called easy. I'm also joined by my incredible co-host, the boy criminal Chris Gersbeck. Say hi, Chris. Hey, Dave. It's really great. That's to- enough, Chris. And New Jersey chicken rancher, Des. Say hi, Des. Hey, Dave. The Dave Hill Good Time Hour. Brand new episodes every Friday on Maximum Fun. Plus, the show's not even an hour. It's 90 minutes. Take that, stupid rules. We nailed it. All right, Sid. Old Dr. No Fun is back on, on duty. So uh, there, there is a doctor who I think would would probably be comfortable with me saying he's the doctor no fun of this episode. Although, what what we're really talking about is a shift in our understanding that like taking care of people, even if your goal isn't adding more years to their life, if your goal is adding quality to the time they have, is just as valuable as it of a discipline. Um, and that that idea came about with the introduction of palliative care 
as its own separate discipline in the 1960s and 70s. The originator of what we think of as the modern hospice movement was Dr. Cicely Saunders, who was a physician, a nurse, a social worker, who um, established, like, the first hospital, St. Christopher's Hospital, where palliative care was really developed as, like, a distinct science, as something you could practice. Because I was going to say, like, I've heard a lot of the history of medicine. Palliative care is, like, the one form of care that we probably did have, like— that was effective and well, I mean, how much of it, uh, what we were doing was palliative, you know, like because we had so few cures to anything. You are absolutely right. I think that the change isn't so much in like giving somebody something to feel better, even if it doesn't make them better. It's the understanding, the, uh, the very clear understanding that that's what you're doing. This will not necessarily make you better. It will just make you feel better. And then also approaching that in a scientific way. Because you can see where there would be like sort of this um, allure of just giving somebody something that would make them really drunk or really high or just knock them out, right? Like right. all of those would achieve that end, but in a very unscientific and ultimately not focusing on quality of life. If you just make somebody sleep all the time, you haven't given them quality of life. Right. So like alleviating pain, but also giving them the opportunity to engage with their family and stuff. Sure. That's, those are higher goals and you needed a scientific discipline like palliative care to achieve them. Um, so in the early days of palliative medicine, you, they were still using the Brompton cocktail. And it seemed to fit, um, Cicely Saunders introduced the idea of total pain and the concept is basically what what seems, again, common sense to us, but nobody had really described, which is like, it's pain that's more than physical. If you're thinking about like a terminal diagnosis or an end-of-life pain, it's mental, it's emotional, it's social, it's psychological, it's multiple levels, right? And so in that setting, the Brompton cocktail made a lot of sense to people because it's got a bunch of different stuff in it. So it's doing a bunch of different things. And again, there was this sort of idea like you're treating all these different feelings you might be having as well as the physical pain. And then also it's doing something, something. that we don't even understand. And they they started studying that different places. There was like a, a Montreal-based palliative hospital where they tested like the use of the Brompton, Brompton cocktail in a palliative care setting and found that it was like 90% effective. Hmm. So, you know, that seemed it was working. That was the thought. Like, well— we don't love this as scientists because it's not standardized. But the amounts can vary, the substances can vary. This whole sort of mystical synergy that people are imbuing it with yeah. doesn't make sense to us. But at the same time, if it works, you know. Yeah, it works. Yeah. Keep using it. Yeah. Well, there was one researcher who wasn't willing to settle for that. Okay. This, this is Dr. No Fun? This, I, I, I mean, I hate to call him Dr. No Fun, but I guess in this context, uh, Dr. Robert Twycross. Um, and he was a researcher who had, uh, early in his career, had sought to work with Dr. Saunders. That was his goal. Greatly admired her work, wanted to be part of the palliative care and hospice movement and research. And this was the field he had endeavored to enter. He even like created a medical society for her to come speak at just for the opportunity to like meet her and get in her little black book as a as like this is a doctor I could work with someday. Mm -hmm. Like just to make that connection. So he went to work with her and he was he was unsure of the necessity of the Brompton cocktail of like are all these components really necessary? Um 
He was really concerned with how variable the cocktail could be. And then also the shelf stability of it. It was not with the stuff that was in it and the way it was put together. It was not particularly shelf stable. Really? And so you're talking about something that like you're going to mix up and then it's going to sit in a pharmacy and who knows what what's there by the time you're giving it to people. Hmm. And that really concerned him too, just as somebody who was trying to come at this from a very like, I will give you this medicine and I can predict the effect. Okay. You couldn't do that in this case, right? And you certainly couldn't predict like based on weight and size and gender and age and all the other things that influence our metabolism of medications. Um, so he went about to sort of like pick apart the Brompton cocktail. Okay. To try to figure out like what's necessary, what doses actually work, what is happening with this sort of mystical thing. What parts of this are just getting people stoned? So throughout the 70s, he's doing this research. The first thing he was studying was the diamorphine because at this point, we were beginning to be concerned about diamorphine. Um, we think it might be heroin, it, so we should start over. It was heroin, and there was concern. Well, first of all, like it was much stronger. It was very fast acting. You can see potential for harm there if not dosed. Correctly. Yeah, of course. Um, the other thing that concerned people was the just the amount of euphoria that was associated with it too. Mm. Um, it too did. Ha- it had. Happy. It made you feel too better, fun. and it had fewer side effects. Was a thought process. Um, so the first thing he did is he compared um, concoctions that used diamorphine with ones that used morphine. Okay. And what he found is that the morphine was fine. There was really no advantage to using the diamorphine, and there were some risks to it. So he recommended like just stick with the morphine. We don't need to mess around with that other stuff. Um, in certain settings where somebody's tolerance was incredibly high for some reason or if they needed massive amounts and you needed it to act really quickly, there was a place for diamorphine, as, like, especially as an injectable. Um, and we see medicines like that today, right? Like the, the uh, Although it's the subject of media scrutiny for another reason, fentanyl is used in hospitals because it is so strong and fast-acting. If you come in as like a trauma, if you've got a broken femur, something like fentanyl is exactly what you need in that situation to provide quick, reliable, predictable pain relief to somebody who's in excruciating pain. Okay. So, but he found that morphine for most patients is going to be fine. So that was the first kind of thing. Let's get rid of the dimorphine, switch to morphine. Okay, then he started doing these crossover studies where he compared like, okay, you're getting the morphine and cocaine, and now we switched you to just morphine. And did we notice any difference? And comparing groups and doing that. And what, what he found, and this was a huge breakthrough, is that for the first like two weeks, you do notice there was a significant difference in alertness with the cocaine. Okay. But after two weeks, there is zero difference between patients who were receiving morphine and cocaine and patients who were just receiving morphine. Weird. So they, like, acclimated to the psychological effects of the cocaine? Mm-hmm. And so you were getting nothing from the cocaine at that point. Except addicted to cocaine, I would imagine. Yeah. And then, I mean, I guess the cost was still an issue, I would say. So, but at that point, what he said was, I don't think we need the cocaine. The morphine is what is doing the trick. We just need the morphine. And if we focus on the fewer components in this thing— the more we can like standardize how we're giving it to people. And we can also adjust the dose more easily. I mean, if you think about it, like if you have something that has a set amount of morphine and cocaine in it and you're giving it to... You got to do the math on the ratios. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and and like you can't just give people twice as much morphine without also giving them twice as much cocaine and, and you know, all that. So... If you've I, ever tried to double a, a, a cupcake recipe, you know what's happening. Exactly. 
So they switched to just morphine at St. Christopher's in a solution of chloroform water still. Um, and then they added something for nausea as well. And they just ditched the cocaine. Mm-hmm. So that was the first big breakthrough, um, which I imagine was like a pain in the butt for all the doctors in the hospital. to be like, everybody stop the thing you're writing. Uh, like you probably had it like all written out and you just. Get a big vat of it. <laughs> Uh, so, and then the researchers back in Canada decided, like, well, we see what y'all are doing there. We're going to up the ante. We're going to take it even a step further. So they did a study where they said, okay, part of you get this Brompton cocktail, and some of you just get straight up morphine and flavored water. Oh. Forget the cocaine. Forget the chloroform. Forget the alcohol. Forget the nausea medicine. Forget it all. Just morphine. Just morphine. In some flavored water for palatability, so it didn't taste bitter. Um, and what they found is there was no difference. It was the morphine all along. Okay. It was the morphine doing the trick. Yeah. Yeah. It would take a while for everybody to catch on. I always think that's really interesting. So, like, they did all these studies, and really by the end of the 70s, it was known to the people who studied such things that you really just need to give people the morphine. And it, and yes, of course, as palliative care is advanced, there are a variety of other medicines we give for other symptoms, right? Like, I'm not saying we don't treat anxiety or nausea or those other things. But when it came to this pain, the morphine is what you really needed. Um, and the advantage of knowing that is then you can dose it appropriately and you can adjust it appropriately. And you can address each patient's symptoms and experience a lot more individually because you, you predict, you know what response you're going to get to the medicine. And you limit harm that way too. Um, but it would take a while for everybody to catch on. The Brompton cocktail survived well into the 80s and 90s. That late? Yes, wow. where people were still getting it. Um, I would imagine there may be somebody listening to this podcast who knows like, oh, I remember like how to, you know, either they remember or their parent or grandparent like remembers that this happened, like maybe somewhat familiar with the concept of the Brompton cocktail because it was so widespread and imbued with so much importance for a long time. Um, and I don't know, you know, how much longer it may have stuck around in other places. If you think about, like, in West Virginia, goody powder is still something patients ask me for. Mm. And that is? It's a mixture of acetaminophen, Tylenol, aspirin, and caffeine. Oh. And in most places, you just don't you just don't use that much. It's, a, it's just an old yeah, thing. Yeah, just get used to something and... But, but I mean, there are still people who will say, like, well, no, I just prefer goody powder. And I don't have any evidence that that specific combination would be better than any other at a headache. But there are definitely people who, who still use it. So, like, you'll see that. You'll, you'll see these sort of what we think of as, like, patent medicines, although this would have been much different prescription level. Um, we see those things hang around. Um, I can think of a couple other examples around here today. I don't want to put too many people on blast. but Ew. Um, it's interesting to me because while this is just the story of the Brompton cocktail, which as far as I know is not being used anywhere today, um, and palliative care is a science, it is approached in a scientific fashion, there is a way to take care of people and give them the best quality of life. And that's studied. It's not just about pain control. It's about overall quality. Life life quality. Yes. And making the best of, of whatever time you have. Um, and so it's much bigger than pain control now. Um, but it's, it's interesting because this is, this was one example of sort of getting rid of some of those kind of magical elements that still linger and still to this day kind of linger around different mm-hmm. parts of medicine mm-hmm. um, from our roots uh, of something that wasn't a standardized scientific practice, something that was very much like 
Did that seem to work? Okay, it did. Oh, let's just do it again without much thought as to the why and the how and the could we reproduce it and the scientific method of it all. Um, and so, you know, the problem was obvious. It was not standardized, different ingredients, different amounts, not shelf-stable, all that stuff, no clear evidence of how it worked, no clear evidence of synergy, all that kind of stuff. Um, but it took us a really long time to let go of it because of the importance we sort of hung and it feels on right. that concept. Feel, yeah. You use something long enough and it just feels feels right deep down. Like Sydney and I just discovered a, a while back that beer doesn't actually go bad when you let it get warm and then cool it off again. Yeah, it doesn't skunk. And it just feels wrong. It doesn't feel right. That feels incorrect, but that is the, that is the case. It's it's very true and that's you know the even when they did the first study to in the one I referenced in Montreal to compare just morphine with the Brompton cocktail, they reference the morphine as morphine elixir. Morphine elixir. Why? I because it sounds I don't know. I don't know. Why do you need to call it that? <laughs> it's just, I mean, but I think that's why. I think because we have these sort of um, emotional connections to these sorts of things, and they're hard to let go of. I mean, I very, only people in medicine are really going to understand what I'm saying with this, but, like, I still feel this way about steroid tapers. Oh, yeah. Medicine has really shifted where we don't give people long tapers of steroids for certain conditions nearly as often as we used to. And that's only been within my years of practice. And it is still like, it is hard for me emotionally to let go of these long steroid tapers, even though I know the evidence shows I shouldn't do them. Um, I always worry. I become ang I become anxious about it. Um, so. There you have it. All these Brompton cocktails, cool name. It is. It's a great name. Great name. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for listening to our podcast. Thanks to the taxpayers for the use of their song medicines as the intro and outro of our program. And thanks to you for listening. We really appreciate it. Thanks to Max Fun for having us on their network and, and what have you. Uh, that is going to do it for us this week. So until next time, my name is Justin McElroy. I'm Sydney McElroy. And as always, don't drill a hole in your head. Fund.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.